Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. What a blessing and a gift that the things of earth would go strangely dim. God, our desire is for that perspective, for that understanding, that we would be so enamored, uh, captivated, captured by you and who you are, Lord. Um, yeah, that the things of earth would become less and less important to us. And God, we are very aware of all the ways that you bless us and you forgive us, but ultimately, Lord, that... Um, that it would be who you are and, and your glory that we would be drawn to. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So we are in the early phases of a sermon series, Walking Through the Book of John. And so the last couple of weeks, we've just kind of been in, in the first part uh, John is, uh, it's an interesting book. It's a little bit different than the other Gospels. Uh, John kind of seems to, to have a, a different order of stories, a different order of events. Um, it appears that he, he does have a pretty different audience. You know, with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were written earlier. And so, um, you know, the theory is that the church at that time was still primarily uh, Jewish people coming people coming out of the, the Jewish culture. Uh, they would have had a lot more understanding of the Old Testament and that kind of thing. But by the time John gets around to writing his account, um, that the church has really shifted to predominantly Gentiles and notably predominantly Greeks. So they're not going to have an understanding of that Old Testament. They're going to have a little bit different background. They kind of have their own uh, worldview and gods and philosophies that that they have worshipped. And so John is presenting Jesus um, to you know to, to a different audience. And so he's. He's working through, and, and the other thing that, that is kind of interesting that has, I've wrestled with over these last couple weeks is, you know, the very last verse in John, he basically said, look, there's a lot of stories about Jesus, and, and I suppose if we were to write them all down, you know, the earth could not contain all the books that, that would be told, which I take to understand that there's probably hundreds, probably thousands of stories about Jesus just that, that could be told. And so then I'm always kind of curious, okay, well, if we've got thousands to choose from, like, why did this story make the cut? Um, which has been kind of interesting to, to reflect on. Um, last week, we talked about water to wine. Uh, today, we're in the second half of chapter two, uh, where, where Jesus cleanses the temple. Um, and again, it's been kind of interesting to, to reflect on this. Like, in, in North America, we really don't have that, like, shoulder-to-shoulder, street-bartering, you know, haggling over price, like really intense, crowded marketplace experience, right? Like, honestly, in some ways, we have the opposite, where it's like, if I want something, I just look at it on my phone, I press some buttons, and it shows up in a couple days, right? Like, we've kind of gone the opposite direction, that it's very individualized, and I just do as much of it as, as I can from home, right? Like, even groceries anymore, you don't have to get out of the car, right? Like, you're just like, put it in the back. You know, um, so anyway, so it's just very different for from how they, they were, um, what was going on for them. 
Uh, for the Jewish people, Jerusalem was, like, that was the worship center, and a lot of stuff happened there. They had three big feasts where people were required to, to come to Jerusalem and, and to participate in that. The biggest of those was Passover. And I used to think, oh, like, you know, maybe a little bit crowded. Um, one commentary said it's possible there were up to two and a quarter million people in Jerusalem. Right now, that's on the high end. But still, like if we shoot for a middle ground, we're talking like one to two million people coming into the city. And for almost all of them, they had to do business dealings at the temple. So, so this would have been like just very, very dense, very chaotic, very shoulder to shoulder. And that's where, where our story takes place today. So let me read this to you. I'm in John chapter 2. I'm starting in, in verse 13. And again, like John, John works through the story very, very quickly. Okay. Um, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Basically saying, like, who, who are you to do this? By, like, by what authority? Like, anyways. Um, and Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Because they just, very earthly perspective. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So again, John moves through the story really fast. And so it's been a fair bit of fun to kind of explore kind of some of the cultural background. Like it just adds a lot of, a lot of kind of depth to it doesn't change the meaning, but it just kind of adds some neat depth and, and kind of makes the story more, more vibrant. Um, so one of the things to, to understand is uh, the temple tax, okay? In, what, one of the things that happens in a multicultural environment is that you get a lot of different currencies, um, and, but then you're always like exchanging those currencies for different currencies and that kind of thing, right? So Jerusalem, Rome is in control, but you got a lot of foreigners coming in and out and that kind of thing. The Jews come into town for Passover, biggest event of the year, right? Every adult male over 20 years old is required to come to Passover, and every adult male over 20 years old is required to pay a temple tax. So one to two million people coming into Jerusalem, all of them have to pay a, a, a temple tax. Um, the tax is half a shekel. Um, and without getting on the math, yada, yada, that's about two days wages, all right, but you have to pay in either the Galilean shekel or the shekel of the sanctuary, but your, your kind of your street currency is, you know, something from Rome or Greece or Palestine or that kind of thing, 
so you have to exchange it. And so that's why you have all these money exchangers, but if you've had to do currency exchanges, you know that they always get their cut, right? Like when, if you've ever had to go and, and you know, trade between currencies, they get a cut, but normally it's like a small percentage or, or a couple dollars or that kind of thing. Again, without running into all the math, these guys are charging another day's wages to convert your Roman coin into sanctuary shekel. So you're supposed to pay the equivalent of two days' work, but you're having to trade another day's work just to get that so that you can go in and trade it. One to two million people coming into Jerusalem, and these currency guys are charging each of them a day's wage just for that, that transaction. Okay, that seems like a pretty lucrative business. If you're going to charge one to two million people a day's wage for a tax that they are required to do in the first place, right? The other thing, too, is location. If you're going to do this, best location is going to be right in front of where you got to pay the tax. So all these guys are going to be jostling for the best possible location. And so it's no longer like out in the street. They've actually managed to move this inside the temple to do all of this. Okay? That's just the tax. Then you got the sacrifices. So, you know, they're supposed to come in, and so you got your ox or your sheep or whatever, your pigeons or that kind of thing that are required for your sacrifice because you got to do individual. Well, again, you can either bring an animal from home or you can just buy an animal there for your for your sacrifice. Well, here's the thing is that the animal had to meet certain requirements. So if you brought an animal from home, you had to pay another guy to certify that your animal was legit. And if your animal wasn't legit, you just walked 30 miles with whatever little sheep you had, and now you got to take it back in addition to buying one of the certified ones. So now the temple has basically turned into just full sale, like auction cattle barn because you got all these people selling these animals and if if some of the 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 you know sheep sellers get in cahoots with this the sheep certifiers like it can be quite a racket because they just pay them off to not qualify your sheep from home so that you have to buy the overpriced certified sheep right inside the temple okay so like i used to think you know, when I read the story, oh, maybe half a dozen tables. Oh, maybe there's like 10 to 20 people. This place is pandemonium. One to two million people, all of them having to do this temple tax and all of them having to buy animals and, you know, you not so great if you try to bring your own animal and so you got critters running all over the place and pooping in the temple yard and, and that kind of thing. Like just full-on auction barn, right? Like it's a mess. And there is a place to say... You know, like in some cases, like, oh, that's savvy business dealing. But Jesus is really, really mad, which tells us that in these business dealings that this is pretty immoral. And actually in the other accounts, he, he calls them a den of thieves or a den of robbers, right? So we can assume that their business dealings are not, not moral. Um, it, it was also kind of interesting um, 
The other accounts record Jesus doing this at the end of his ministry, whereas John records this doing at the beginning of his ministry. So you get into the commentaries, and they got like this big debate going on, and like, did Jesus do this twice? Like, this was a yearly thing that he did? Or did John just rearrange the order? And that kind of thing. Um, and basically, not, none of them can, no one has a clue. Um, you know, some are like, yeah, anyways. But I've also concluded it doesn't really matter when Jesus did this, because I think John had another motive in placing the story here, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Here's the other thing that kind of surprised me that I wasn't quite sure what, what to do with this, okay? Um, when Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their, their account, okay, they've got a lot of Jewish people in, in the church, okay? Um, but when John writes his account, majority Gentiles, like we said, right? A lot, a lot of them are Greeks. But John also writes his account like, I don't know, you know, 80s, 90s, AD, that kind of thing. For the Jewish audience, the temple would have been a huge deal. For the Gentiles, meh, like it's a building, right? By the time John writes, the temple has already been destroyed for like 20, 30 years. Like, it's, like it is a gravel parking lot, okay? There is nothing left. So why does John take the time to write this story about a temple when the Gentiles don't even care about the temple and the temple is like long-distant memory? Um, Book of Nehemiah, we went through that like several years ago, right? But they, they start rebuilding the temple. It's like 500 and some um, B.C. Fast forward a couple centuries. Herod the Great comes to power. He wants to remodel the temple, probably to curry favor with the Jews. So he starts remodeling project like 20 B.C., right? Like before Christ is even born. Um, it sounds like it gets finished 60s, early 60s A.D., Meaning when Jesus is in the temple, it's still under renovations, right? So you got scaffolding and bucket of paints and whatever that kind of thing, right? Like that's the, the temple Jesus interacts with. Okay, so they finish it, and then it looks like two years later, they finally get this thing done. And just two years later, the Jews throw a revolt against Rome. War breaks out. The Jews lose. The Romans win. So in 70 AD, they attack Jerusalem, conquer it. And then, whether by accident or intentionally, they set fire to the temple and it burns to the ground. Well, here's what happened. That temple had a lot of gold and silver in it. And when it burned, all that gold and silver melted and ran in between the rocks and the stones of the temple. The Roman soldiers want that, so they go to the charred remains and brick by brick, they pry apart the temple so that they can get the gold and silver that is melted in between the stones. And Jesus predicted all of this. When you draw near and saw the city, he wept over it. Oh, when he drew near, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. It's estimated that a couple thousand Jews died in the fire. Um, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Another spot. Jesus left the temple, was going away when his disciples came to the point, uh, point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
because those Roman soldiers wanted the gold that had melted in between the bricks. By the time John writes this, that's 20-year-old history, okay? You probably have a whole generation of people that never even saw the temple. Maybe some of the old-timers saw it, but, but that's it. Um, so again, right, like why is John including this? Because frankly, like the, the temple has like no significance for this audience. Um, so Jesus drives out all these dealers, which when you, when you think about how chaotic it would be, and we won't go into this a lot, but it's just like, like the man would have had to get like almost just really violent to drive out that many people in such a crowded space. Like, I'm not sure how, let's use polite terms, animated, I mean, he did make a whip, but like how wound up one man has to get to drive out all of these business dealers and all of the cattle and all out of like a pretty big, sp anyways, it was a, yeah, Jesus was wound up, okay. Um, he drives them all out. The other accounts re record him, uh, Jesus, saying that this is to be a house of prayer. And that, there's a lot of beauty in that. I mean, I, there's a lot of ways to understand prayer. I, I think at its connection, I mean, I think at its core, it's just a, a great connection with God because um, you can't really have a good relationship if, if you didn't talk with one another. But just the fiery passion that Jesus has for you and I and for people to have a space where they can just have uninterrupted connection with God, like it's profound. And, and, it, and it was for all people. Okay, I got a slideshow. It's one picture. Put, put the picture up. Okay. Um, drawing of the temple. I found this online. It's not hard. You can Google this. Okay. Different people had different access in the temple. Okay. Like only the priests can go in the center. But then outside the building, there's a courtyard that's only for qualified Jewish men. But then outside that, you have another courtyard that's for qualified Jewish men and women. All right. But here's the thing. All these business dealings weren't in that area. The Jews still had a spot where they could have quiet, uninterrupted, unbothered place to worship God. All the business dealings were in the larger area, the courtyard where only the Gentiles could go. The Jews still had a peaceful, quiet place to pray, walk, ponder. The rest of the world is stuck outside in the auction barn and Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And then, with a lot of rage, he drives everyone out of that area. Paul is eventually going to write about the mystery revealed. And the mystery revealed is that everyone has access, access to God. Everyone, okay? This is not just, just for the, the Jewish people. And there is something very moving about, Jew, about Jesus showing such uh, rage, passion, violence, concern, activity about the Gentiles, about you and I being able to pray about the rest of the world having an opportunity to connect with the Lord, okay? It is very important, was very important for Jesus, is very important that you and I have the freedom for that connection and the ability to, to connect with God in a meaningful way. We also have this, okay, I'm done with that picture. Um, we also have this comment from Jesus. Uh, his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will, will consume me. Um, he, he's quoting Psalm 69. It's a messianic psalm. It gets 
quoted elsewhere in the New, New Testament. Um, zeal is kind of a fun word. I don't know that we really use that word a lot. I don't use that word a whole lot. Maybe in your business dealings, you, you, you use the word zeal. Um, I don't hear it a whole lot. Um, it can also get translated as jealousy or it can also get translated as fury, right? Um, but just the, the idea of zeal just communicates a lot of passion, a lot of energy, a lot of fierce and intensity. We spend a lot of time talking about how Jesus loves us, which is good and true, and we should do that. However, let's not forget the extent to which Jesus loved the Father. Um, I once heard a story, don't know if it's true, kind of amusing. Um, you know, some large conference, musician gets up, does this solo version um, of, the, of the song, you know, crucified, laid behind a stone, you live to die, rejected and alone. And like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. Right? Very emotional song. The story then is that John Piper gets up to speak, thanks the musician, and then proceeds to explain how the song is completely thought theologically wrong and shouldn't be sung at all. Right? So probably a little bit awkward. John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's the Father. And to finish his work. Another place in John. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Another spot in John. Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son that your Son may glorify you. Over in, in the book of Luke, when, when Jesus is wrestling with the cross, not my will but yours be done. In that moment, Jesus did not want to die on the cross. But he did it because he loved the Father. The, the plan from the beginning was that Jesus would die for our sins. But in those last moments of Jesus' death, I, for Jesus, I don't think he was thinking of us. I think he was thinking of his love for the Father. And I think that's ultimately what held him in place. Now, bigger picture, yes, I mean, he's dying for our sins. But I think just in, in the brutal intensity of the moment of the cross... I think Jesus was thinking of his love for the Father. And that kind of zeal and passion for God and for the glory of God, um, that's inspirational for us, that's instructional for us, and how we should live with just that fierce passion, that zeal for the, the things of God. Numbers 25 has a really weird story, okay? Um, the, uh, and sometimes you should just kind of read it to, to get the unedited version. Um, the Israelites, in mass, um, have uh, inappropriate relations with the local ladies. Um, and as a result, they're also worshiping the local gods. So we have adultery, and we have fornication, and we have idolatry, and all these bad things. And God gets mad, and a plague comes in, and a bunch of people die. And Moses, being a good man, calls a prayer meeting. So he has a prayer meeting, so he gets the leaders together, and they're doing their, their prayer meeting while they are having their prayer meeting, one of the local Jewish boys and one of the local gals walk right past the prayer meeting and into a tent nearby. Um, what, yep, okay. Um, one of the guys, Phineas, I think is how you say it, gets mad, grabs a spear, follows them into the tent, and kills both of them. All righty? God stops the plague. Phineas is rewarded with priesthood for what he did, right? 
Like, um, Behold, I give to him a covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and all his descendants after him the covenant of perpetual priesthood. I've filled out a couple ministry applications in my day. Killing people has never been a requirement for whether or not I get the ministry position, right? Oh, no, no one? Nope, I'm sorry. You're not the guy for us, okay? Um, so it's kind of a weird story that way. But verse 13, it shall be to him and to his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God. And as we've said, jealous and zealous are sometimes interchangeable. It, it, it's the same idea. Phineas was jealous. He was zealous for the things of God. And so God made him a pastor to his people and said, all of your descendants will be pastors to my people because you were zealous for the things of God. Jesus was absolutely zealous for the things of the Father, and I think it's good for us to do likewise. Now, does this mean that you get licensed to overturn the tables and, and scream and, and make a big scene? You know, maybe. I would say leave the option on the table. Um, just don't rule it out. And I say that simply because at the end of the days, we will have to give an, an account for our life to God and not to men. And so what does it look like to be zealous for the things of God? Because ultimately, he's the one that we give an account to. Last idea. Um, Jesus also makes this comment. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Remember, they're like mid-renovation phase. 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore, so John is going to make a connection between that comment and the resurrection. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus was, was spoken to them. It, it is frustrating and increasingly frustrating to me when people misrepresent Jesus on the cross. Because you will hear, you know, like, well, Jesus died because he made the authorities mad. Or, you know, Jesus died because he stood against the institutions. Or Jesus died to model for us what love could look like. Or, you know, Jesus died to show us that the cross is a better way. And all of those kind of touch on truth, but yet totally skip the full truth. And I would say that if this is the only thing you say, then it is a lie. All righty? And, and this is not hard, right? Like, again, like, Google this, okay? Like, verses, why Jesus died. And then just read the actual verses on what the Bible says about why Jesus died. Jesus died because of the sin demanded payment and it saves us from the wrath of God and that was the plan from the beginning. Now these other things happen, but those are secondary. Primary reason why Jesus had to die was sin payment. Um, Jesus was on the cross out of obedience to the Father because it was necessary to save us. Which is why Jesus can walk into a temple three years before anything happens and tell everyone, you're going to kill me, but I'm going to raise it at three days later because that was the plan 
from the beginning. It has also been, uh, what's a good word for it? Disturbing um, to hear that people are now claiming that this kind of, this is like a basic theological tenet for us, to which people are now claiming that this idea is abusive and we shouldn't share it because it's oppressive to people. Um, like people are now claiming that it's unjust and that it causes trauma to you and I to hear this message, right? And so, you know, to be told that sin is real and that heaven is real and that hell is real and that Jesus is the only way, well, that's mean and that's stressful and that causes trauma to those who hear it. And listening to a gal in a podcast who travels all over the U.S. and speak to this, this is, this is very, the amount of grandparents who have come up to her who have received a no-contact letter saying your worldview around sin and heaven and hell are so trauma-inducing and so problematic, you are not allowed to have contact with your children or your grandchildren. And specifically, she told the story of one grandma where the daughter, I think it was the daughter, came to grandma and said, okay, you can have interaction with your grandchild, but as soon as you or someone in your family or in your church mentions the word hell, it's over and you will never see her again. So the, the, it's really heartbreaking, but this is the world that we are moving into where the core of what we understand, Jesus and his purpose and his identity and what he came to do is now getting labeled as abusive and trauma-inducing, and so people see it as a moral value to cut it out, to, 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 to eliminate that message. Jesus was very passionate about people having access to God. Uninterrupted, unhindered, unhindered freedom to pray and have communication with God. And he loves you and I more than we will ever love ourselves and more than, than we will ever love each other. But I do think, though, that there's a sense that he loves the Father even more. And the plan from the beginning was to die on the cross in obedience to the Father so that we could have that restored relationship with Jesus. And that is a great message to be very zealous about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful story. Uh, it may not read like that at first, but what a profound and beautiful story, Lord, because it, it speaks to us about your character. It speaks to us about Jesus' love for you. It speaks to us about your love for us. And God, it's just a, it's a small sample of, of the, the links that, that you're willing to go so that we can have opportunity at restored relationship with you. And we're grateful. Lord, I pray that, that we would be a zealous people, zealous about the message and zealous about uh, people hearing the message and having freedom to hear the message. And Lord, these are hard times that we're moving into, um, increasingly difficult, increasingly difficult to navigate. And Lord, we're, we're seeing signs of it kind of beyond us, Lord. Um, and I pray that you would give us wisdom uh, on, on how to navigate that and, and move forward with really the best message that the world has ever heard. We love you and we worship you in your name. Amen. 
Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.